Over the last year, I've received tremendous support from all of you, the listeners. I've always said that I love to do this, and I have these great conversations with people in our profession because I like to do it, because I enjoy it. I love to highlight those who are changing the way that we do business. This passion has also taken time from my family and my practice. And so when industry partners began reaching out to me to help support the podcast, I was beyond flattered. And while initially I got really excited about being able to further support my family and give back to my community, I also had to take a step back and think about why I like to do the podcast. I turned to my wife, my dad, and other mentors like Ted McElroy to get their perspectives. And what I realized was that if I were going to partner with companies, I required two things. First, I have to believe in the products and the culture of that company. They have to align with my beliefs in patient care. And second, I have to maintain control of the content of the podcast. I can't say something that I don't mean, and I don't want to be afraid to have a guest on that's controversial or censor my thoughts on a topic. I believe I've found that partner in Cooper Vision. Their partnership will allow me to continue to improve this podcast and take the necessary time to have great high-quality conversations. It will also allow me to access people in their company who are actually developing the new lens designs from the bench to the clinic. And I look forward to having a few of those conversations over the next year for a deeper understanding on how these new products are delivered to the marketplace for us to use. So when Ted and I say, please support those who support us, we're talking about a company who understands what we're doing with this podcast. And we encourage you to utilize their resources when it's right for your patients. So thank you to Cooper Vision for partnering with iCode Media in 2020 to deliver this content to our listeners. Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a conversation with Dr. David Nelson, who is a shareholder and partner and member of the Medical Advisory Board for Kepler, uh, a private equity firm. And he talks about the benefits of private equity in his practice specifically and, and also their goals for expansion into other, um, other practices as well as the uh, potential benefits in the healthcare realm in being a uh, a part of a private equity group and selling your practice to private equity. We also discussed Optos and um, some of his approaches to uh, utilizing Optos in practice. And I think it was a fun discussion. I think we disagreed on some things and, um, and I, I hope you enjoy it. With that, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and support those who support us. And just so I can remember, you're state legislative chair for the AOA, is that right? Yes. Yep. Congratulations. Uh, thanks. Thanks. It's going good, but it's been busy. We've we've had a, a lot of, we've got um, a lot of really great staff right now. Daniel Carey, Catherine Hendricks, we've got Dana Reason, and we actually have another, Mary Bowers, who, uh, so we have these regional uh, directors that can kind of help us engage with the state. So when they need help, we, we have somebody that's that knows them, that's kind of constantly hanging around with them. And so that's been really good. Um, so kind of, I think, I think David, what would be helpful for our listeners is to, um, to think about, or to kind of have a perspective of your background. Uh, first, how did you, how did I get on your radar? How did you reach out to me first a, a month ago or so? Well, I, I've known your dad for quite a while. Um, 
and uh, I was just thinking about, um, let's see, I was talking to somebody about the Vision Source AMD program, and they said that you were chair of that, and then you were in Wisconsin doing a lecture, and I just thought, I should connect with this guy, um, because not only are you doing state ledge stuff, you're doing AMD things for the Vision Source group, and then as well, you know, I joined this Kepler Vision group, which is a PE group, and so, um, I don't know, between all those things, I thought it's time for me to get my... Uh, conversation back with a Nebraskan. I'm originally from Fremont. I don't know whether you know that or not. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think I did. I think my dad mentioned that. Uh, mm-hmm. And you practiced here for a little bit, didn't you? I, uh, just uh, just less than a year in a hometown practice uh, in, in Fremont there in, in 85. And then uh, my wife at the time, uh, we got married and uh, we moved back to Wisconsin. Okay. So right after that, she did a residency in uh, at Omaha at the... Um, oh, OELI with uh Vanderbilt. Yeah. yeah and so then we made the move to, to back to nebraska and uh, i left but i i grew up uh, pretty much from second grade to high school i went to carney state college for my undergrad hmm. in indiana but, uh, it, it's awesome how uh how small the profession is because i i meet so many people when i am traveling and um and they say oh yeah I, i'm from north Platte or you know, I'm from Kearney or it's like, wow, it's, it is pretty cool. Um, just, and, and then how so many people are interconnected. Yeah, uh, it is amazing, isn't it? It is. And, and I think that's one of the, the fun parts about doing this is that because of that interconnectivity, there's a lot of people in the profession who have done a lot of really cool things in it to allow, you know, my generation to practice the way we practice. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, part of the thing I think would be really fun to hear the story of is sort of your progression through, I would imagine through the AOA chairs uh, or the, the board of trustees and then through the chairs and kind of the time, describe the time that, that was going on in the AOA um, mm-hmm. for those of people that don't remember or don't even know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, I was um, AOSA president uh, in 1984, mm. uh, the student association president like you were. Wow. And uh, I got involved in optometry uh, very early in my career. I became a trustee for the school at Indiana uh, in my freshman year, my first year of, uh, of optometry school. I had a friend who, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Totally. I think that's a, it's a great phrase. I've used it a lot over the years. And uh, so I had a, a friend who was a, a year or two ahead of me in an optometry school, Jim Rowe, and he wound up becoming president of AOSA. And he had me step in as trustee or trustee elect, and then I became trustee the following year. But he kind of took me under his wing, and I saw, you know, what it was like to be AOSA president. I thought, that's fun. I think that would, I would like doing that. So um, I got involved very early, and uh, when, you know, as you know, when you're involved in AOSA, you get involved in national structure uh, very quickly. And so I became good friends uh, and colleagues with uh, much older practitioners, became part of the membership committee, as most students are. And I worked my way up through um, the AOA and through membership. Uh, but I also was involved, uh, and since I graduated in 1985, uh, I was involved in the therapeutic effort for Wisconsin. I was on the committee uh, that passed the bill in 1989. We were the 25th state uh, in the country to allow optometrists to use pharmaceutical agents. So I was part of that committee with three or four, five or six others, I guess. You know, from time to time, there was different groups. So I was in the legislative chair committees, I was in the hearings, I was in all of that and, and very early in my career. And when I first started in 1986 in Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin, optometrists across the country could not see a Medicare patient. 
yeah. we, were, we were not Medicare certified at that point in time. So I practiced not only without therapeutics for a couple of years, I practiced not being able to see anybody over 65 for a year. And then in 1987, Medicare was passed. So again, um, it's crazy. I, I just, it's, it really, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy career. because so many people, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but it's just, I think it's a point worth noting is that so many people don't even think about that. And, and, and it is sort of the idea of, you know, vanishing value, right? Like, like people, you know, I'll see on, on social media where people will say something like, what has the AOA ever done for me? Or what, um, what uh, the states do everything, the AOA doesn't do anything. And, um, and yet, I mean, how many, you probably know or have an idea, how many billions of dollars have been able to be billed uh, where we didn't even have the ability to do that? And that's, that's yeah. like 30 years ago, not even, you know, a little more than 30 years ago. It's, it's insane. It is. It's insane. I think it's over a half a billion dollars every year now uh, for the last 20 years. And uh, just think about the care and the ability for uh, optometrists to see patients uh, all over the country in every county and every state uh, where it hadn't been that way before. Uh, and if it hadn't changed, uh, we would have uh, not been able to do those things for these people. And I think it always comes back to patient care. And again, um, when I first came into the state, there were a lot of optometrists who took me under their wing here in Wisconsin and um, they told me that, wow, the profession has changed so much since I've been in practice, you know, 20 mm -hmm. uh, They were the drugless profession. They were the no-touch profession uh, back in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty big battle even to put uh, diagnostic pharmaceutical agents in uh, patients' eyes because uh, there were a, a large group of optometrists who really uh, were very proud of the fact that they had a no-touch profession. And so uh, therapeutic pharmaceutical agents was uh, in a similar way, a little bit controversial. Not every optometrist wanted to do that, not, in, not just in Wisconsin, but all around the country. Uh, there were a lot of optometrists who didn't feel like they needed that kind of uh, authority. And uh, in my training in school, it would just became, it was just like, I couldn't even believe I was hearing that. Um, but, you know, you're trained a certain way, you come through a school a certain way, then you can't practice that way. And that's really a choke chain. And so I got involved really quickly and uh, became, uh, you know, involved in the therapeutic effort for Wisconsin. We passed a very, very good bill uh, at the time. And it turns out uh, even it's standing the test of time uh, for some things that are changing in the profession mm -hmm. uh, from a technology standpoint. One of the other things, not only standing on the shoulders of giants that I wanted to talk about is just in general, the change in, in healthcare that we see from a uh, patient need standpoint and from a technology standpoint, you know, uh, when I graduated from optometry school, uh, we didn't even know that there was going to be a thing called LASIK uh, with yeah. eczema laser. Uh, it was not covered in school. We did not know about it. I was at an AOA meeting in 1989 when I first saw that this was coming, and then it passed in 1994 in the FDA. So I had practiced uh, for nine years without having any idea that laser could be done. We had those few years with uh, radiocaritotomy. Um, that, you know, now has gone away, of course, because of the improvements in technology, but ocular coherence tomography was not possible. Uh, that came around in the early 2000s. Uh, that has really changed the way we take care of patients. Uh, wide field imaging, we use an Optos uh, instrument, as I suppose you do too. Uh, you can capture the back of the eye without even dilating the eye, and you can get probably as better, as good of a view or better in some ways uh, with the software and the technology than you could even with a dilated exam. Um, then as well, you know, um, 
we, we have uh, new dry eye therapies. Uh, we're using uh, intense pulse light now for our dry eye patients and mm-hmm. microbrain gland deficiencies. And it's improving 80 to 100% of our patients. It's just an incredible technology. So, yeah, it's been really fun to practice uh, and it continues to be more uh, interesting and rewarding to see and take care of patients than it ever has been. And so it, it really gives me a great charge that not only um, uh, we have the therapy, you know, the, we have the statutory rights to do these things. We have the reimbursement abilities to get these things paid for and take care of patients in a way we've really never done in, in the past. Do you think, have you ever gone back to think about if, if the people in the 60s and 70s that wanted to continue a touchless profession um, or the people in the 80s who didn't want to be a, you know, a prescribing uh, or a medication prescribing profession. Do you ever go back and think if, if that were the case and that's where our profession just stayed that um, I mean, we would largely just have, I mean, barely a profession anymore at all I, yeah, or in the future in the next five to 10 years. I, I talk about this as well. If you are not pushing forward, you're getting hit from behind. And if you get hit from behind uh, so severely that uh, you might actually be wiped out as the profession, I, I would agree. And, you know, we talked a little bit about AOA, the American Optometric Association, being pretty much the mothership for the profession. And I think those words couldn't be more true uh, before or today, either one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is great organizations in, in optometry, uh, lots of different groups uh, out there, associations. However, um, the AOA is the one who protects and expands the profession and uh, is really in charge of the future of the profession. It's been that way for 120 years. Um, I was the 80th president and, uh, you know, just very fortunate to be able to serve in that position. And uh, it's really unfortunate that more people cannot experience what the AOA uh, is and or does for the profession and for their practicing lives, seeing their patients uh, all over the country. Yeah. Since I was president, there's been more than 20,000 graduating optometrists. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that, I, I uh, was done being president in 2002. And wow. since then, there's been 17 classes of about 1,500 students. And so the profession changes over nearly completely every 30 years. Yeah. And, uh, what we need to do is instill the, uh, the professionalism within our uh, new graduates and our uh, young practitioners to understand that it, isn't, it doesn't matter where you practice, uh, at, in my opinion at all. And I've felt this way for a long time. I campaigned on it. I was uh, AOA president because of some of these things. It doesn't matter where you practice it. It matters what you do in your practice. And There's lots of different places that you can hang your hat and see patients. But if you uh, compromise the training and the education and putting the patient first, uh, then you've done the wrong thing. It doesn't matter whether you own your own practice or whether you work for an ophthalmologist or another optometrist uh, or a retail location or anything. Uh, If you are changing the way you do things because of where you're at, uh, then you're doing the wrong thing. And... uh, the AOA is there to give you some guidance uh, and to be part of something where you can understand there are guidelines, there's accepted practice patterns, and uh, 
practitioners should follow them. And there's a reason why those are developed. I completely agree with the idea that, um, that you, it doesn't matter where you practice. It matters how you practice. What I think is, is interesting though, is, is, um, is, is it true that it is easier to practice, um, to the fullest extent at any different location? What, what I'm saying is, you know, does where you practice, um, matter in the sense that it, it can make it either more or less conducive to a, a particular type of, um, you know, a type of utilization of the scope of practice we have? Well, I've, I, you know, I've thought about this for a long time and I, I got a very early impression working in a, in, in a referral center in my fourth year. And what I found and what I saw was that we had really good practitioners in locations and in places that I wouldn't have expected good care. Mm-hmm. And I also found that some Patients mm-hmm. who were sent in by practitioners who owned their own practices uh, were not as what I not what I expected. So I, I think it really doesn't matter where you practice. Uh, you can keep your standards intact regardless of where you are. Now you can be influenced by your setting and by the people that are uh, running the setting, and that's actually whether it is independent or. Uh, solely owned or whether it's a retail setting, which you might think is going to dictate the standard of care. However, um, you can be influenced, but at the same time, it doesn't have to take over the way you practice. I, I talked to uh, lots of doctors uh, with Optos and uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Optos uh, feels is that both dilation and Optimap technology is best. So both is best. And I talk to doctors who are not routinely dilating before they put an Optos in. And I say, do you ever remember a time when in school that you did not dilate a patient? Four years of training, two years in clinic, maybe a residency. Did you ever not dilate a patient? Because a wide field look or a, a, a look at the back of the eye and the retina, seeing the entire retina is part of a comprehensive exam. So where did, where did doctors lose that? Where did they lose the understanding that they were trained a certain way for a certain reason? And that means that you're supposed to take a look at the back of the eye it's in its entirety. So, uh, again, it doesn't matter where people are. If they're not getting a good look at the back of the eye, a full look at the back of the eye, with technology or without technology or, or with both, I don't think they're doing the patient a favor. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I agree. This is, this is a, a topic I didn't, you know, this is kind of how I want our conversations to go, but this is actually quite interesting. I've had, you know, I've, I've listened to discussions. Um, I've even read, um, you know, articles in our, our kind of um, our publications that have, you know, a point counterpoint and, um, and I, uh, um, people that I have a ton of respect for, you mentioned Bob. Bob is huge on dilation. Paula Jamie, huge on dilation. And he was my preceptor, by the way. Yeah. I mean, so, so like guys that profession are, um, I mean, uh, I owe so much to both of the things that, that they did, not from a scope of practice standpoint, but from a visionary standpoint where they could say, look, we don't have to lose our patients you know, when we send them in for cataract surgery, we don't have to lose them ever. We can, we can do a, there's a better model for the patient that, that we can develop. So, um, 
But so when I read these articles, I feel like everybody's talking past each other. You know, in our practice, we don't just use Optos, right? Um, there's, there's, uh, I believe, I, I mean, I completely agree with you is that there is, it's both end. Um, and so, so I, it's, it's always like on the one hand, um, you hear, well, uh, the people that are, are talking about don't, don't use an Optos. It, it's not, it's not like use it in the right way. It's just don't use it. Right. Or like, you can't really rely on it. You got to have dilation, dilation, dilation. It's like, wait a minute, there's, there's a way you can rely on this technology that allows you to enhance the care you're giving as opposed to completely um, subverting the care that you are trained to give, as you're saying. So why do you think there's that disconnect? Uh, because they haven't used the technology and they don't understand the research. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and by the way, I am a consultant for Optos. It's one of the things that I did starting uh, right away after I was done being president of the AOA. And if you can imagine someone uh, as a past president of the AOA um, supporting Optos technology in any way in 2003 was kind of a, a little bit out there. Mm-hmm. And I took a few hits for it. Uh, however, I think uh, the technology and the research has proven true over the years and the, the, you know, the improvement of the device and, and uh, the ability for the capture has been pretty incredible. There's now 800 peer-reviewed papers hmm. utilizing ultra-wide field imaging with Optos technology. Uh, I don't believe there's any, any device, imaging device out there that has more than 800 papers. Um, and it is specific to Optos technology. So it's, I, I just, I'm, I'm fortunate that an early call after my, me being president wound up being something that is so widely used and so, um, so well respected in all the eye care community today with some of the devices now, that are now available in uh, ICG and forcing angiography. But again, putting, putting that aside, I think sometimes when I talk to a patient that is so certain that they have a certain contact lens brand, mm-hmm. they're almost 100% wrong. <laughs> yes. And, if, <laughs> and a lot of times when I hear the, um, the level of animosity towards or supporting a certain or against a certain technology and or um, procedure, I find that usually there's something not quite right about how that's so vocally being defended. Um, again, uh, it's probably because they haven't used the technology. Yeah. And uh, if they don't know what it can do, uh, then they probably can't comment on that. Um, if they haven't used it in, in practice, they probably just don't have any business uh, commenting on it. But Well, I think so. So to, to jump in, because I, what I would say my perspective is, is that because um, I think the argument would be they probably do see um, times where somebody missed something blatant that um, where the patient had optoses, you know, and, and they, they missed something where the patient had symptoms or no symptoms or whatever. And so then um, the, without using it, they say, well, this is how, this is the problem with it is, and I, I, would, I would actually agree with that is that if you're coming into it to, to think all I'm going to do now is an optos. And the reality is, is if you weren't looking at all before, right? Or you were just looking with a super field undilated, it's way better. Um, I would guarantee the same person that misses it with an optos is going to miss it with a dilation. But again, it, I think it, that is- I would, I, it's exactly what I would say. That man, that's exactly what I would say. And, and, and as you know, when you use it, 
there are things that no matter, I don't care how good you are with scleral depression or a uh, Goldman three year, three mirror, um, and just blowing those pupils up. I've sent, I've sent, um, patients with progressive retinoschisis to retinal surgeons that they, they miss it multiple yeah. times. Yeah. And they and, have no idea that they should yeah. be losing those. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So anyway, I mean, that, I guess I, I agree with you that, that, but on the other side, it's, I think where they're concerned is that people are misusing, you know, they're worried that somebody's going to come in with flashes and floaters and they're really worried about the profession, right? The patient first, but also the profession that patients are coming in with, with, you know, their concern is coming with flashes and floaters. We do an optos, everything's fine, right? Like, no, like no, no, medical no, no. legally, you know, obviously no, but, but I think that's, that's their primary concern. And I don't know anybody that does that, but I think that can be one of the, the concerns they have. Well, some people have asked me in the past, if, if you know, when you do, when you get an autos, do you throw away your indirect or I said, <laughs> no, you don't know. And you know what? I don't throw away my 90. I don't throw away my 78. I, uh, I still have great uses. I even use a direct scope every now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, they have value. Um, yep. you, you really never throw away any particular way of taking the care of a patient unless it's completely antiquated. But um, you just add, you add to your armor of, of things that you can utilize in order to take care of people. Um, and I, again, back to uh, a miss is a miss. And uh, my guess would be if a patient is not being worked up correctly, if you don't have a, uh, Paul Jamian told me one thing. He said, if you don't know what you're looking for into the back of the eye, by the time you pick up your scope, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. It all comes through uh, your uh, review of systems and your chief complaint and uh, finding out exactly when and how these things happen. And if you haven't got a good differential by the time you're ready to take a look at the back of the eye, you're probably swimming. Yeah. So yeah. That's and, one of the things I learned. I yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's, uh, not swimming, drowning. <laughs> yeah, you are. And, and, and of course, like um, that. So the, the challenge I think with um, comparing, you know, even, you know, there's such a different, um, style of practice when you're, and I've never been in a referral practice. So, so I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, we get a lot of referrals for, for corneal stuff, but, but in general, there's not, I'm not in a primary referral practice, right? Like a secondary center or tertiary center, but, um, there's a, a drastically different approach to being in a referral practice. For example, you know, you might get a, a referral for a swollen nerve. And so you're already knowing, okay, well, this patient has some neurological stuff going on. These are the things that we have to differentiate between disc edema and papilledema and how do we differentiate those things and et cetera, et cetera. You just go down the line. Well, when you're in primary care practice uh, and you may do all those other things, right? If you're fully using the, the knowledge, education, and training we have, you may, you may manage a lot of that stuff in your practice. Um, but it's the, it's the kind of lulling to sleep, I think, of, you know, uh, asymptomatic, asymptomatic, not right. You know, you're not asking questions to screen, you know, high, high, um, likelihood common diseases. And there's like normal, 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 normal. And then when you get to the point of, of feeling like, Oh, a patient has a new symptom. That's sort of weird. And I'm going to pick up my direct. I, I don't really know. I, I've forgotten what I'm looking for. Right. I've, I have, I, so then I am drowning. Right. And so it's just a different way, you know, if you're not, if you're not doing that, I think on a regular basis, which is one of the reasons I love to talk is that it forces me, I'm in a primary care practice, but we take care of all those types of patients, but it forces me to rethink through like, what's my differential diagnosis? What am I seeing? Is this normal? Is it abnormal? 
and doing it on every patient. Um, where I think if, if you do get to the point where you're, you know, in a, in a, if you are practicing, uh, in a way that is, um, just waiting for patients to kind of tell us what's wrong or tell us that they have symptoms, then, um, then we're not used to thinking through what we might be looking for. Yeah. The way I guess I was either trained or have come about seeing patients, uh, my feeling is that a patient doesn't seem to ever come in just because they want to waste 30 to minutes to an hour of their time. Yeah. There's something, yes. there's yes. something in the back of their mind. It, it, they might think they have cancer. They might think there's something wrong. Uh, every day I see mm. 50, 18 people a day and not one of them are just coming into waste time. So I'm always look, I ask three questions before I finally figure out why they're here. And, uh, you know, basically, so how are you doing? Oh, great. Uh, How are your eyes? Wonderful. Uh, do you have any trouble seeing? Well, this left eye, I've been having a lot of (laughs) (laughs) third question when they open up to you just a little bit. So, um, but again, I go with it. I go with every day saying, you know what? Nobody's coming here just waste time. Uh, yeah. They came in for a reason. They may just need their script. Uh, I understand that a lot. Uh, but at the same time, they're lots and lots of times thinking about something that has been bothering them. And I, I need to find it. Yeah, I love that. I, I, um, I guess I've never thought about it that way, but, but that's been always my approach is to say, you know, I'm going to ask as many, I see signs when I'm looking at the front part of the eye, I'm going to just keep asking questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if I see that, for example, you know, my bone gland dysfunction is so common as you know, with, with your IPL and it's, and it, and, and largely I think it is thought that it's asymptomatic so often, even in early on in in the disease. But if you ask the right questions, it is not asymptomatic. And so just like, as I'm going through, I'm, I'm asking, you know, I'm seeing what I'm telling them what, what I see, but I'm also asking questions. I just don't stop asking those questions. And, um, sometimes I feel like I'm a little annoying, but the reality is, is by the time, I would say 95 to 98% of every single patient that's in my chair, if I ask them the right questions, they've got, you know, they've got something, like you said, something that's bringing them in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always confusing to me when, when I finally get to the last question I could possibly ask, and I'm like, there's really no other reason than, than they just thought, well, it's time, right? And that's all mm-hmm. they thought. And sometimes that's the case, yeah. Yeah, but rarely. We've been, doing, we've been doing blood pressures on every patient for about 15 years. We get a lot of pushback on that. Uh, but I think it's one of the more important things we do. I, I went to my dentist uh, about a year or so ago, and they were starting to do carotid Dopplers in their office. Hmm. I said, wow, that's um, interesting, but you didn't take my blood pressure. Have you really thought about what you could do for your patients? I saw in the, in the news just uh, the other day uh, that 75% of patients can name their primary family doctor. 75%. Seventy-five percent. I would say it probably that's pretty strong. I'm going to yeah. say based on my population, I, it'd be it'd be less than seventy-five, maybe more than fifty. But most of them haven't seen anybody uh, for a while. They know who it is. They haven't gone in for a while. They don't get regular physicals. And I see blood pressure uh, all the time, high yeah. blood pressure all the time. And w- almost all of them push back on the blood pressure, saying yep. that that isn't the way it usually is. And so I have to have a five or ten minute conversation about the fact that it does affect, uh, even if it's erratic or sometimes high, that means it's unstable, and that's just different than high blood pressure. What you would think about it, but I got uh, just uh, last Tuesday, Wednesday, one he was a uh, two twenty over one twenty, 
and he yeah. wouldn't go to the, he wouldn't go to the ER. And I yeah. called him the next day, and he didn't answer the phone. Um, and that's and I said, you know, and I had the conversation with him. I said, you know, this is the kind of thing that if you leave it untreated, somebody will be picking you up off the sidewalk and, and taking you to the hospital yeah. because you will you will cycle out. And so, but anyway, I have those patients, those kind of uh, conversations with patients uh, on a pretty daily basis, I'd say, but just taking blood pressures and getting a BMI. Those two things are really, really important for taking care of a, an, eye, uh, an eye patient. So uh, we get them on everybody. Yeah. If you, so to, to link that with, with Optos, you know, my dad and I have this, these conversations, you know, I don't think there, I mean, I don't know that when I, when you, when you have an Optos, how often I see patients with peripheral hemorrhages oh. and, you know, you look at their blood pressure and it's sort of borderline or maybe even a little bit high and, um, or it's, it's completely normal, but I always tell them, you know, there's really three things that we want to rule out um, right away that, that's going to cause this. The most common ones are going to be high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol. And if all of those things are good, then we can sort of chalk this up to coughing, sneezing, you know, lifting, those sorts of things. And if we start seeing it worse, and then we may dig some for some other additional tests. But you're right. How many people sort of just like blow off? Like, well, I'm in your office. It can't be my high blood pressure, right? Like I'm in an eye doctor's office. It can't be blood pressure, right? right. Uh, and, and, and still to this day, you know, I, I, um, I was talking to Barb about this um, in December and, uh, you know, we, it is amazing to me. I, I do think we need to talk about the systemic uh, diseases that we can see in the eye. It's always amazing that, you know, patients don't understand that and the public doesn't understand that. Um, but I also think we need to just continue to do a very good job of detecting and educating patients about what's going on in their eyes, like the, the primary reason that we're there. But it is amazing when I, when, I, when I show them hemorrhages and their blood pressure is, you know, 155 over 98. And I'm saying, you know, when was the last time you saw your primary care doctor? Oh, you know, last year, what was your blood pressure? I, I don't know. They, they were fine, fine with it. Yeah. They're, it's always fine. fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it, it is amazing that, that they, oh, I didn't realize you could see that, you know, yeah. it's, it's, I have somebody my mind. Me that every week and sometimes a couple of times a, a day. Uh, it is, it's, it's astounding how few people understand the systemic uh, effects that can happen in the eye. I tell them that, well, you know, the eyes are the only part of your brain that sticks out of your head. You yeah. can touch it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only part. Uh, and that's how close we are to being able to see what's going on in the rest of your body. One of the things that Optos, I've, I've talked to doctors about as well, is that it's a, it was de developed because it's a great way to take a look at mechanical problems with the retina, tears, detachments, holes. But what it's really good at yep. is managing chronic disease yep. and helping you manage chronic disease because those little, little hemorrhages, 5, 10 micron hemorrhages, 20 micron hemorrhages, you cannot physically see them with a dilated eye exam and a nope. 20 dollar lens. Just nope. not possible. We, I was just at the uh, Optometry Retina Society meeting representing Optos, and we had uh, practitioners, there was about 175, and we were able to image 17, 18 of them over the, you know, the, the group work workshops. And there were 10 that had peripheral hemorrhages mm. of 18 in yeah. optometrists. They were all optometrists. Yeah. Uh, one had diabetes and another one had macular degeneration, but again, um, it, you think it is a perfectly healthy, normal population that gets eye exams every year. Well, optometrists, maybe, yes, maybe no. But at the same time, 
10 to 17. Yeah. I, I was even a little shocked at that. Well, so then what do you make of it? Because a lot of times I, I do feel like, um, because of course, like when you send them to the primary care doctor, it's a, it's basically a black hole, right? Like, like yeah. that's like ophthalmology referral centers used to be is, right. you know, you're never going to see that patient back or you're never going to, you, I'll see the patients back, but I'll never hear from the primary care doctor. Uh, right. send them a nice letter, you know, all those sorts of things. What are, are, cause it seems like we just get less of that as feedback and I just wind up chalking it up to, um, to, you know, Val, Valsalva, you know, those sorts of things, because we don't hear back about what the results are. Um, and then we're monitoring that patient back and they'll be like, oh yeah, everything was okay. But I'm thinking, how many times are they, are, are they saying it's okay, but the blood pressure they're measuring is at that borderline level? And right. yeah. So what, what, is there evidence on that? I, I just haven't seen it from Optus. I bet there is. Well, so for diabetics, uh, if uh, there's a study that was published in March of 2016 that showed that if a, a diabetic patient has predominantly peripheral lesions, no macular involvement, very, or no macular involvement, but a, a dot blot hemorrhage in the periphery, those people have uh, a five times greater risk over four years of developing two levels increase in retinopathy. Hmm. And that was a 400i study. It's been repeated, and it could be up to 16 times more likely to wow. develop a, a two levels greater retinopathy. And there's some reasons for it. Bill Jones is really good about this. And uh, I don't know that you know Bill. He was mm -hmm. an early, um, early peripheral retina uh, educator. And he used to do a lot, of, a lot of educating talks around the country for doctors. And uh, he said, they basically, everything starts in the periphery first. Yeah, everything. Yeah. And uh, I was a little bit skeptical. Uh, because that contrasts with, um, with Dr. Alexander or, um, yeah, um, God rest his soul. I always forget Larry, his name. Larry Alexander. Larry Alexander, right? Because yeah. his, yeah. his point was the only thing that matters in the periphery is symptomatic or, I mean, basically, if it's, if it's, not, if it's asymptomatic, it doesn't matter in the periphery. What you're saying is Jones says completely the opposite. I would, and I would say, based on my work and research that I've seen using the Optos instrument for the last 17 years, uh, Dr. Jones is correct. Yeah. And uh, there was a really nice editorial. Not, I think it went with the March 16, uh, 2016 uh, Academy of Ophthalmology Journal that published that report. And the editorial um, ophthalmologist said, you know, I trained at University of Wisconsin, and I had been told that the periphery mattered. And now this study proves it. Hmm. And he said, over the last 25 years, I kind of forgot about that, but it turns out it really matters a lot. Yeah. And this, this study shows that, and it's been replicated again, twice. I don't have the actual citations, but I can get them. No, want. that's okay. Um, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's, um, if you do, so if you do, I'll put it in the show notes. I believe you, but if you have them for the listeners, they, they might appreciate reading through them. Sure, right, let I'm me, let, let me ask you this. Do you, um, so I guess let me rephrase the question because I don't know the answer is, is how often are we going to see those peripheral hemorrhages and not find the big three? Do you know that? Probably about half. But ah, there's, okay. there's, there's one of the things that I see commonly is high exercising um, individuals mm -hmm. who have small little bleeds and or irmas in the periphery. It's, it seems to be some very, very active people do have those kinds of problems. Um, so if you see a very fit person and you see a, a little uh, micro hemorrhage or nerma, uh, it probably is just because they're high exercisers. However, putting those people aside, if the overweight and uh, uh, obese population 
is one third to two thirds of the population. And if there's a 40 million undiagnosed diabetics, I would imagine that it's probably impending prediabetes or uh, prediabetics and or high blood pressure or the two together uh, that have yet to be found. Yeah. And one of the problems with diabetes is, you know, of course, the specificity on diabetic testing is 67% for each the fasting blood sugar, uh, glu glu hmm. glucose tolerance, hmm. and uh, help me with the other one. A1C. And A1, well, yeah, A1C. Uh, A1C is pretty helpful. Um, I don't know what, whether that's the one or not, but you need to. Oh, you're uh, looking for another one. Diagnosis for diabetes. And it's yeah. just, it's, the specificity is just not there. So it takes them a long time to come up with a diagnosis for diabetes. In, in my opinion, based mm. on having seen patients, we'll see early signs of diabetes before they get called as, as diabetic. And I think the same thing with high blood pressure. And uh, so I would say about, I, I see five to 8% of my patients having these peripheral hemorrhages. It's, um, I, I don't know that I have a study for that or not, but it just seems like one out of 20. Yeah, I would say and, I would agree with that. Um, I don't send people in anymore like I used to when I first got it because what I find is that they won't do anything and they poo-poo it and I get kind of bad feedback from it. So I just tell them, make sure you get a physical in the, in the next year if you haven't had one. Yep. That's all I'm going to say. Yep. And then I said, you know, we, we might see this again next year. And then we don't. And because yep. that hemorrhages are usually um, last month or two. Yeah. I think that's exactly my experience is, is um, I sent a letter with them or I just sent a letter to their primary care doctor. Um, I tell them to get their physicals, make sure they're checking for those three things. And, um, you know, and again, because I don't hear anything back. Um, I mean, sometimes I do from the patient, but I just never hear anything back from the primary care doctor. Yeah. Uh, but that's sort of the nature of the beast. Um, so I think, you know, this is, I want to be respectful of your time. And I think we probably could do more of these over time, but I do want to get, you know, you and I, I think so far on this conversation have agreed a lot about a lot of things. And so I did want to kind of maybe bring up something that we may not agree with. And, and when I say it, we may not agree with it. It's just that I'm just trying to wrap my mind around the topic. And, and one of the things that you and I had talked about when we first, um, when we, when we first spoke on the phone was private equity. And that potentially um, there's some other ideas that, that people would want to explore with I, private equity beyond what, you know, jo Dr. John Doe uh, was able to present. And so I'd love to talk about that with you. Um, I think the, so to give you a little bit of a jumping off point, and, and I'd like to hear your ideas on, on the financial aspects as well, but there was a very well done podcast um, called 2020 Money, and I'll put it in the show notes for, for the listeners. But I don't know if you heard it, but and I don't know who he sold to, but it was kind of the first practice group to go to private equity in Texas. And um, and they had a really great conversation and it was about an hour long. And the guy that does 2020 money is like like a financial guy for optometrists specifically. And he, it's very well done. I mean, it's a very well done podcast. And I thought the conversation was excellent. The thing that was very interesting to me was Ultimately, as this doc was ready to kind of transition out of it, out of the practice, he had a he had a partner that was forty years old, uh, essentially, basically my age, and then um, and then he was ready to retire in five to seven years, and so he looked at this as an opportunity to to sell out for more for more than he what he could get, for more than what he could get from his partner, uh, and his partner was um, happy as well, and but what it kept coming down to, and and he, the 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 host kept trying to probe for anything deeper 
But what it really came down to was financial. I mean, his answer essentially was, I could sell for a lot of money. And so, um, so first, uh, if you can talk about, you know, your experience with, you know, um, with that briefly, but I want to get to a little bit, a deeper conversation that, um, I think you brought up with the AOA. So can you kind of talk about the financial aspects of what a private equity firm is going to be evaluating and what they're going to be looking at and what doctors might want to be thinking about when they're, when they're having those valuations done and being approached with different groups? Sure. Um, I'm happy to comment on all of that. Uh, my experience has been absolutely wonderful with uh, our private equity group. Um, Stepping back though, over the last 30 years of what I've seen happen, uh, there was a time when private equity took over uh, referral centers. And uh, it was happening all over the country. It was, um, it ended in a poor way, uh, unfortunately. And a lot of the doctors had to buy their practices back. And uh, I think it maybe was just not timely. Maybe it was something that, something else that I'm really not aware of, but I do remember that happening. One of the other things that uh, happened a, a lot of years ago uh, was that ophthalmologists bought optometry practices. And uh, I had a first right of refusal on a partner of mine in a venture that we were in, and the ophthalmology group offered four times what I could pay. And uh, this was in 1999. And I said, well, uh, good luck to you. That's going to be awesome. You get a great uh, price for your practice. I just couldn't afford it. And you know, there are times when something is happening an outside force uh, makes it so that it is not really a good idea to uh, let a practice go uh, for an amount that is not a good idea. Oh, of course. I bought four practices for about 35% of the annual gross. Uh, right now, private equity is paying 100 to 150%. Now, this uh, kind of program won't last forever. Um, but stepping back a little bit farther from what's going on and why it's happening is that individual optometrists are pretty much today at a place where they cannot control their mm. contracting ability with insurance plans. I think that uh, any optometrist who works with another optometrist saying, hey, you don't take my plan, I won't take your plan, that's antitrust. It's yep. impossible. So uh, insurance companies have an enormous leverage on independent practicing optometrists uh, around the country because they have no other option but to either take or not take the plan. And I think you can also look – this is my – business training, I've got an MBA, and after you get an MBA, you're, you're forever messed up. Um, because you look at everything from a business angle, and you, you think about why is it that the reimbursement for a, a complete exam today is the same as it was in 1995? Well, I can't think of anything else that has not increased uh, over the last 25 years, except for the price of an eye exam reimbursed by an insurance company. And yes, I can understand why it is that uh, insurance companies in the future might pay less or that insurance companies used to pay a lot are, are going to pay a little less than they used to. But now we're talking about barely uh, being able to um, see a patient for the amount that they're uh, asking us to be reimbursed for. And then if we decide we're not going to take the plan, uh, we're just out and there's plenty of others to take it. Right. So when are, there are groups that 
are large enough to make a difference, they can together um, probably make a difference in the overall reimbursement issues. So I don't believe that I, I got my antitrust training at the AOA because uh, we were sued by 27 attorneys general uh, the day that I became a trustee. And uh, we spent about a million dollars every year of mm -hmm. AOA money uh, fighting uh, the contact lens antitrust lawsuit. And we wound up uh, settling at the end of the day with no, uh, no uh, admission of, of guilt because we weren't. Uh, we were just drug into the suit because that's what attorneys generals do around the country. But it gave me a lot of understanding about antitrust and not to mess with it. Um, but unfortunately, because of the independent practicing uh, optometrist, of which there are about 70%, 75% practicing by themselves, they are unable to do anything other than just not take a plan. And I think that may be one of the things that changes over the next 15 or 20 years, because there will be large groups of optometrists that are together and they, they can actually make a difference in the reimbursement issues. Yeah, I think so. So you hit on a, a point that um, I'm really passionate about. About um, must have been 2015. Uh, we went into sort of this venture in Nebraska, and, and you're probably aware of um, of you know physician hospital associations and um, yes. and uh, independent physician associations, IPAs, mm -hmm. and so um, we what chiropractic has done is they've actually formed what's called a messenger model IPA, and so. There's really two main models. One is called a clinical integration where um, you and I would have to be so integrated that um, in order to operate under this model where we could negotiate um, terms that, such as money, um, where if a patient sees you and they have glaucoma, essentially they're going to they're going to get the same medications the same you know uh the same schedule of of um you know visual fields octs right and as i would give and there's not as much wiggle room as like just the different nuances between providers and so that was that's one that that we really couldn't pursue unless we really had um common tax identification numbers but this messenger model what it would allow us to do would be to make other provisional negotiations that were not directly related to, um, to pricing, uh, in order to, um, basically get better contracts collectively. Uh, the, the biggest thing, and, and the way this works in chiropractic is that and now they've expanded all, I mean, they're, they're in probably almost every state with this model. Um, and it's housed really in Nebraska. It was, it was started in Nebraska. It's called secure care. But what they do is they, um, they can say, look, we, we look at a normal distribution curve and, um, and we know that there's going to be this 10 to 20% of outliers at that high end of, of billing. And so instead of being able to specifically say, well, you know, um, we want you to pay us more, right? Because we have all this big group. What they've been able to do is say, we know that 20% of chiropractors are overbilling. And, and we will bring those doctors in line and you can decide, wink, nod, you can decide what, um, and by providing that utilization management, essentially, we're providing a service um, that, that, for that service, that's worth something. And we can figure out a way to, to save you money and also benefit that, that corporation. Well, so we go down, we go down that path and do you know what we found? 
So we, we analyzed all the data from the number one payer in Nebraska. And I talk about this all over the country. I see it time and time again when, when you analyze this data for, for optometrists. And you can, you can do it by looking at CMS data as well. Is when you look at the normal distribution curve, um, most professions have an outlying group of about 10 to 20% where they're, they're above what, what you would expect based on their, uh, you know, based on their specialty. Mm. Nebraska, optometry in general is skewed to the left. So we, we don't have overbillers in the profession. And so when we go to these companies and try to, you know, do those types of negotiations by saying, look, we can bring people back in line. We have really two problems. The first one is everybody undercodes chronically everybody undercodes. And I think they're, I think it's mainly because of scare. So people, you know, you read a journal and you're scared that if you bill a 99214, you're, you're going to get audited. If you're worried, if you bill a 99215 for a patient that has a retinal detachment um, with a macula on, do uh, you think you're going to get audited? Like, like the, you think that there's no way that I can bill these higher levels. So that's the first ding. The second ding is that, um, that the, OD has been, um, I think my, this is my interpretation. I think we've been browbeaten to think my value is what the vision plan tells me my value is. So that's their starting, that's, that's their high point. They're thinking, well, that's maybe I'd like 10 bucks more than that or 30 bucks more than that, but that's my point, right? If I'm getting 65 bucks or 55 bucks, whatever it is. Um, and then they, and then they're, so they're undercharging. So this, these insurance companies in many cases are saying, look, we think your value is $200. That's what we'll pay you for that service. And you're charging us $70 and you're upset about getting 65 from the vision plan. And, and so, so that's the second ding. And so in that analysis, if you normalize the distribution curve for optometry, what we found was that, um, that we left, uh, and, and we just said, look, this is the actual um, well, two things. First is if we didn't normalize the distribution curve and just said, this is the actual care that was provided and it was appropriate levels. We left $5 million on the table in one year, one payer, $5 million. And if we normalize the distribution curve, that was, that was $7 million we left on the table as a profession. So I think, I, I'm not sure that that really gets to the heart of what you're saying, but that's really, I mean, that's a huge challenge. And that's, I think it also means that people aren't going to, in a lot of cases, they're not going to practice to the fullest extent of their training because they don't see the value in it, right? So, so you're saying, and, and it's interesting because I haven't really thought too much about how private equity comes in and does it, except for the fact that they could now then have a, a clinical integration model that would allow them to go to those payers if they have a, a critical mass in those states. Have you seen that yet? Not yet, but I do think that's where it's going to go. And I do think that, uh, well, back to some of your points, um, there were quite a few. Um, so right. doctors undercharge, they don't bring uh, people back and do other testing, uh, typically. They don't do uh, anything other than a full yearly exam, uh, comprehensive, because that's what they were trained to do. Uh, but what I've tried to get optometrists to do is, is hey, you don't do everything in one exam, uh, just like a dentist doesn't. You bring them back every six months. I have my macular generation patients, I have every three months that are on, on uh, AREDS 3, basically stage AREDS 3. Because if you don't catch them within six months and they will not catch themselves, uh, there's just no way for them to do that. AMS regret, um, yep. be darned. But at the same time, um, I bring those people back every three months. I bring my diabetics that are uh, moderate and severe every six months. 
uh, sometimes every three months. Patients need to come back more often. And so one, we don't charge enough. A lot of doctors don't even charge up to the Medicare uh, standard. And that's not silly necessarily. It's a competitive thing. And I understand that because there are places and every, every city has them and it's different. Again, it doesn't, it's not XYZ optical uh, in every place, every time, but there are bad players. There's bad competition out there uh, that does four an hour and does a very poor job even at four an hour. And uh, they're charging zero or $35 for an exam. And you know, when somebody calls us and we say we're $175, they put down the phone. Uh, And so then I understand why optometrists wind up charging a little bit less. Now, Again, sometimes um, I think the setting you're in and the environment that you're in can start affecting how you value yourself. Um, so if you see free exams everywhere, you go, wow, I guess I'm really not worth very much. <laughs> um, you can kind of convince yourself, I suppose, if you pay attention to that long enough to think maybe you really are not as valuable as, as, you, as you are based on your training and how you can make a difference for a patient, saving an eye or a life. And that's what I talk about with uh, my staff. Uh, when somebody's on the phone and they have something that they want to be convinced they don't need to come in for, which is why they pick up the phone. They come in for, they, they call uh, on the phone to make sure that they don't have to come in. I said, if they're on the phone and they found our phone number, they've taken enough time to just get them on in. And so I say, anytime we ever see anybody that's on the phone, just come on in, we can see you today. Yep. Uh, that usually ends that program. <laughs> Yeah, they kind of triage themselves from serious and severe to just you know, wanting to be uh, assured if they really do have something that they'll come in and we'll see them. Yep. But um, you know, optometrists for a long time have not charged enough, not valued themselves as highly as they should. Don't, don't bring the patients back like they should. And that really comes from within. And I think that um, if you pay attention to your training and uh, the, the status and the uh, the uh, education that you've received from uh, an accredited school of optometry that's uh, sanctioned by the Department of Education, as all colleges and all professional schools are, they have to hit certain standards, they have to be credentialed, they have to be accredited. There's a really, really big program for all of that. You went through that program. You graduated from that program. And yep. now you have to do what you were trained to do. And you don't ever change it, whether it's 10 years, 35 years, or 50 years. So again, yeah. Um, but I think the biggest problem, you were asking about private equity. So Yeah, so I, let, me, let me ask this question. So I, I guess I'll get to the, you know, um, the real meat of the question is um, my concern. So, it, it, you know, my experience in private practice, and I feel like the way, the reason that we um, ha- can practice the level that, that I practice in my practice is that we're constantly trying to improve. We're try, constantly trying to bring in new, new technology so that we can better diagnose our patients and better manage their, their diseases. And I, I feel like I have a lot of that. You mentioned my dad before, but I feel like I have a lot of that because I have really good mentors and people that have kind of uh, shuttled me through that process so that I can have confidence about what happens when a patient um, pushes back on a piece of technology or a piece of treatment. And so I have no illusions that when a, you know, a seasoned guy that went through that same sort of, pro- um, same sort of, um, process in his practice for 10, 20, 25 years uh, of continuing to improve that when they sell to private equity, I don't think that that's, that's going to change that practice. I think that, that for the next five years or however long that private equity group is going to hold on or really how long that doctor is going to actually practice, 
that practice is still going to, cause you have ownership of that practice, whether or not you own it, you've, you've basically built it and you want it to, you want to see it continue. My real concern is what happens when Dave Nelson sell, you know, he's done, you retire and the next guy is coming through that practice. That's my concern is, is, is it going to still have the same, you know, um, desire for growth, improved, um, you know, patient care, improved technology, all those sorts of things that we see by and large, I mean, not like you said, not everywhere, but, but, but a lot of times through those private practices. And so is, I guess, and then is it going to be the case that those new docs that come in to fill David's shoes are going to have the mentors to say, Hey, you know, you got to continue to move the profession forward from a scope of practice. And uh, I mean, that's, that's my biggest concern with it all. Well, um, you know, our, our, our talk today is a change in standing on the shoulders of giants. I think um, change is inevitable, and uh, ownership is one of those things. Uh, but again, being true to your profession, your education, your license is a, a pinnacle. Uh, it's, it's what you have to do, regardless of where you are, uh, regardless of the change that's going on. And uh, when I bring in a new practitioner, uh, I have... I make sure that they have like-minded values and that's what my associate doctors are. So in the event that I do uh, discontinue practicing in the next five to 10 years, there will be doctors right behind me doing exactly the same thing that I have been doing because we set up a culture. And uh, I don't believe that uh, an organization is going to change that in a, in a great way uh, just because uh, they respect the licenses. And I can, I can understand and hear uh, some organizations, some corporates uh, do not really uh, necessarily value the license. Uh, but again, like we talked before, that comes from within. So it doesn't really matter whether they respect the license. You respect your license because that's what you were trained and educated to do. And you're not going to change the way you do it just because somebody is uh, new as a new owner. Um, we talked a little bit about professionalism uh, of new practitioners, new graduates, and even older practitioners. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has to be of prime importance. I worked with an ophthalmology clinic. I was in a multidisciplinary clinic for 12 years before I was in private practice for the last 20. Uh, that's how I started out. Did I do what I did there? I sure did. Was I uh, well-respected? Yes. Was I well-liked? Not always. Uh, but I practiced uh, to the full scope of my license as a practicing optometrist in a new therapeutic state as of Wisconsin with ophthalmologists. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was the second optometrist in that group. Uh, there are now 35. Mm-hmm. And there are about 100 ophthalmologists. And today, all of those optometrists in that particular setting, which is here in town, it's called Dean Medical Center, they, um, they're doing the primary care uh, for eye care. And they are all board certified. They have to be all board certified. And they're not going to employ a comprehensive ophthalmologist any longer at Dean. Hmm. So now that's taken 30 years for them to completely change the way they operate for patient care to allow optometrists to be the front line, but it did change. Do you think, so, and I'm not trying to, um, you know, uh, skewer anybody, but when you look at the, um, you know, the reason that they've gotten there is because of their license, because of their ethics, because of, of um, you know, all of the things that you had talked about their training, but they also got there because of guys who decided to work to make sure their profession was respected in, in light of the people who they're employed by now, 
um, all the things that they'll say against us, as, as you know. So um, I guess my question is, I mean, are they as involved as you were? Are they, you know, are oh. they, yeah, are they, are they taking on those reins to kind of continue to move the profession forward? And how does that then impact? Because I, I, I think that can happen. I've seen it happen. You know, uh, Terry Geist, um, I mean, she's, she's worked diligently to do that um, in Nebraska. I, I'm, I just, I'm just asking the question. I don't know. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that? I think anybody can become complacent wherever they are. It doesn't matter if they're an ophthalmology clinic or they're owned by a private equity group or a corporation or, or by themselves uh, owning their own practice. I think that complacency can happen anywhere. Uh, is there a greater trend? Maybe in some settings. I wouldn't say this is one of them that we're talking about now. Uh, they become more involved um, and uh, they are involved in the association in a great way uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, one is the chair of the education committee uh, from that particular center, mm -hmm. uh, but there's others that are involved. And I don't believe that you would hear them say that they're going to not pursue expansion of scope. Uh, there's a new optometrist in that particular setting that is on the young professionals of optometrists. Uh, there's a young association. There's a young Wisconsin optometry association group, kind of a subgroup. And she's part of that in that clinic. One of my doctors is in actually two of my doctors is in that a particular young optometrist um, group, and they're going to be involved in the therapy or in the uh, legislative committee. Great. So um, I think it all comes down to the individual yeah. and who they are uh, in touch with and uh, how they decide to um, continue practicing, not only within their setting as a in patient care, but and outside uh, of their practices and, and forwarding the profession and expansion of scope. So, um, so last question, um, the, so, um, so far you've been able to see that same trend continue, uh, with, with the private equity group that you're with is that they've, they've basically continued to allow, you know, all those other things that you're doing in your practice to kind of grow practice mentorship through, through the new associates that are coming in. And you and you had control over that because you decided to be able to pick that private and private equity group. Mm -hmm. What happens at the next flip? What happens to that group in the next spinoff um, where you don't have that control? Well, I think that um, all change is inevitable and anything is possible. Um, what I'm doing with this particular group is Kepler Vision uh, is that I'm part of the medical advisory board and I am working very uh, diligently to create a culture that we're about. Uh, there are different private equity groups, and this one in particular is medically focused. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Van Gaddy is our, our chief medical officer. I'm on the committee uh, with uh, Whitney Hauser and uh, Eric Schmidt from North Carolina and uh, uh, Paul Carpecki. Mm -hmm. So as you can tell, uh, this is a different, quite a different group maybe than some of the other ones. And will it stand when it is flipped into something else? Maybe not. But I would bet hmm. that there's going to be something very similar uh, to that. My eye doctor has a, a professional um, medical advisory group that mm -hmm. I know uh, very well. Uh, Scott Allison from uh, Indianapolis is one of the, the, the group uh, people. One of the things that have happened over the years, you know, uh, you're in Vision Source and I was in Vision Source, and Vision mm -hmm. Source was a great concept 20 years ago. It had a hard start, uh, it wasn't as popular, it was an independent franchise, and it was. Uh, debated hotly uh, mm -hmm. in the profession in the 90s because, wow, we, we weren't going to take 
private optometrists and make them part of an independent franchise called Vision Source. But everybody needed to get into a group for better pricing. Yeah. We, uh, optometrists who were on their own were paying much, much greater uh, costs for materials that they were purchasing. And Vision Source changed that, uh, changed that in a very enormous way, as other buying groups did too. And uh, I think this wholly owned group that now I'm a partner in uh, is a different, is in the private equity, is a different way of, of evolving, uh, you know, evolving into something that needs to happen. Again, because at the time, uh, buying groups were really important for practitioners who were by themselves to get better pricing for their cost of goods. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I think uh, this is going to lead into wholly owned organizations that uh, are multi-state that then actually help practitioners see patients better. And having not only the cost of goods, but as well, um, this holy ownership, uh, holy ownership. Yeah, it does give you advantages for sure. Huge advantages. Yeah. Do and you I think, think sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I want to, I do want to ask you, I want to, uh, cause you, you made the, I wasn't aware that you're a, a partner in, in that group. What, so, cause, because then I, I, I see, okay, well, you know, I, cause I think, well, I, I don't want to work for somebody, you know, I, I, I like, I like having control of my practice. And then, you know, but you still have some control, right? Like as a partner, you still have some control. So how would it be the case then that if somebody wants to come in and have those advantages, is the only way to have, be a partner in Kepler is to be able to sell, sell your practice and be an influencer in, uh, in a general realm? Or could you have a, a, a partnership path that comes as a new student that's coming in and saying, look, I, I want control of my destiny um, business and, you know, and clinical. Uh, I mean, how, I guess, I guess I'm, yeah. How does that work? I, I don't quite understand your question, but um, are you saying that a student coming out of school could become a partner in Kepler with have, having a practice to be a part of? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, no, that, not that I know of. Um, this is, is there a path? Would there be a path for them? You know, I, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I don't know that there is or would be. Uh, however, uh, there's definitely an interest in the private equity groups to have vibrant young professionals come into their organization because uh, it's just something that we have to have all yeah. kinds of diversity in. And so uh, there's uh, 150 um, partners within Kepler Vision right now, and there's about 300 locations, maybe 350, somewhere in there. And there are another couple hundred, 300 uh, associate doctors that are really important to the way uh, all the practices operate. Uh, currently, I'm still in charge of my entire practice. Uh, mm -hmm. I approve the doctor schedules, the associate schedules, my schedule. Um, I just get a lot of help with the, the staff and the human resources and compliance and HIPAA and all the things that go along um, with owning your own practice. I just get a lot of help with that. Yeah. And it, it, it's very comfortable. It, it's just a great way to go. And I think my associates are just as happy as I am. I know the staff is happy because uh, they tell me all the time how happy <laughs> they are. Uh, and, and I was, a, uh, you know, as, as an owner, I, I was a hard owner. I mean, I, I mm. had a lot of, um, you know, not, not, I, was a good, I was a good employer. I was a good chief. I think everybody said that they liked working for me. But, um, you know, there's a lot of limitations in having a small group. Um, we had 17 people, one or two short, three locations. Yeah. We're in trouble. 
right? So how does that work? So well, now if somebody is out for two, three weeks, somebody comes up from one of the offices in, in Iowa, Illinois, or mm. somewhere else. And so we just have a lot more backup, I think mm. is, is really kind of a thing that's really helpful. And it makes me sleep at night. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. So that, that I will leave it at that. I, I think maybe if you'd be interested, I'd love to have you back on to talk a little bit more at some point. Uh, we can get into some other details of some other things we didn't hit today. I would um, like to talk with you about macular degeneration genetics. One of the things that uh, we didn't have uh, 20 years ago is we didn't have a genetic profile in every patient. Now we're getting pretty close to being able to have a genetic profile, a full human genome a genetic profile on every patient we see. I don't know what we're going to do with that. In the area of macular degeneration, I think there's some really interesting uh, things to talk about going forward uh, yeah. that are going to be really important for, for patient care. Yeah, I think, um, so I'd like to, if, if you'd be willing to, I'd like to have a, an entire conversation about that. Um, Absolutely, I love And that. we'll just schedule that for another another time. That'd be great. Yeah, that's actually uh, probably the thing I've been doing the most over the last 10 years. We didn't even get to it, but. Yeah, uh, no, I, I and, I, and as you know, I've been, I've been researching all, you know, all the same stuff and, and, um, and yeah, I think it, it is something that I want to explore with you more because I think, it, I think the audience will really appreciate it. Yeah, I think so, patients really help you help us out there too. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay. So with that, thank you very much for, for coming on the, on the podcast and, um, I really appreciate it. Well, Chris, thanks for having me. It was really a joy to talk with you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Bye.